Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. Welcome to Season 2 of Heroes Gamos Radio, emanating from the jewel of the South and bringing down fresh fever for your listening pleasure. Our guest is a scholar whose work centers on the traditions of yoga and tantra and their impact on new religious movements in the West, the Lima, the cultural history of the 20th century, contemporary occultism and comparative esotericism. Author of India and the Occult, the influence of South Asian spirituality on modern Western occultism, contributor to Cambridge University's Alistair Crowley and Western Esotericism, and the Grand Lodge of Australia's Aura et Labora Research Journal. We're delighted to welcome Gordon Djurjevic. So I guess to start with, I'm interested in, um, in your upbringing and what led you to the study of Eastern and Western esotericism. Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a kind of a long story, but uh, to try to keep it reasonably short, I was in the first grade of the high school when a friend acquired a book about yoga done by a local author, Živorad Mihailovic Slavinsky, about whom I later wrote a paper. And uh, <clears throat> I, that was the winter break. Um, so this is somewhere 1975, probably late December or early January 1975, I think. And uh, I borrowed this book uh, about yoga and uh, I kind of read it in, in in two gulps, and I pretty much probably kind of now in retrospective kind of had a mystical experience after, after reading the book. I went out to, to the town and it was, you know, early morning and I'm observing people and I'm thinking, my God, these people are living their lives and they have no idea about all of that. And kind of somehow then and there, I decided that this is the most important thing in life and uh, was kind of a dabbling with the whole thing from, from then on. I mean, continuously with on and offs uh, doing this and that, but pretty much this has been in, in the forefront of my interests. <clears throat> and uh, it, Pretty soon after this, one book about yoga followed another book by the same author that covered the, the Western hermeticism, as he used to call it at the time. So pretty, pretty soon after that, I got also exposed to Aleister Crowley because he wrote with great appreciation about Crowley <clears throat> as, a, as a great adept and a spiritual leader and all of that. So I was... Uh, pretty much very, very, very impressed, but um, there was at the time no translations of Crowley available in former Yugoslavia, at least that I was aware of, and my English there was uh, <clears throat> pretty much non-existent. I studied German in, in school, a bit of Latin as well, but no, no English. And when finally in the, in the mid, mid 80s, I stumbled across the translation of original Crowley, I, <clears throat> I kind of had another another of those, oh my God, this is it. And uh, was kind of hooked immediately and again, doubled with it pretty much since then on continuously. With some breaks, with some on and offs, definitely. Do you find that your attention has wandered backwards and forwards between the West and the East and sort of come together more as you've gotten older or how has is, how is that sort of played out? It, it has, it has greatly and uh, in those early days when I was still very much young and naive and foolish and inexperienced <clears throat> based on something that I have read, uh, I assumed that one has to find a definitive path and not, not to wander off. And then it was always so extremely excruciating. Okay, should it be yoga or Zen or Hermeticism or Kabbalah or this or that? And this used to kind of give me a big headache and one of the great attractions of Crowley's system was uh, kind of a dismerging of East and West that, uh, <clears throat> that uh, he was very much uh, emphatic about and that I found also to be quite appealing to me personally because uh, I do think that, they, that 
to, to, to speak in, in really broad general terms and to paint with a really large brush uh, Eastern and Western esoteric traditions, I find them both to be quite appealing. They all have their own obvious differences, uh, <clears throat> but uh, so kind of not everything is uh, to my liking and not everything needs to be <clears throat> glorified and justified, but by and large, uh, I think that I personally find both of them to be quite appealing. You've written about occultism um, in the form of Yugoslavia. Can, can you describe some of its characteristics for listeners? Because people may not be familiar with the kind of culture that existed there when you were growing up. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it is it is somewhat unusual and it is quite, I mean, personally rather interesting. Yugoslavia had a soft communism or, or we actually called ourselves socialist country. That was the official name of the country, the socialist, the federal socialist Republic of Yugoslavia. So we considered communism to be the goal that we haven't reached yet. And uh, we were not part of the Russian bloc. We, we did not live behind the Iron Curtain. People were free to travel uh, throughout the world. Uh, Few exceptions, but by and large, it, uh, it was possible. Uh, Western culture was also quite uh, quite welcome, quite popular. We had uh, kind of a, in, starting in the 50s with the jazz and then in the 60s rock and uh, later punk rock and the symphon rock and uh, all of that uh, prog rock. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, movies, uh, on our television, I was able to, pretty much I got my film education as, as, as a teenager or as a kid watching watching Kurosawa and Bergman and uh, Fellini on, on our TV, on our TV. And uh, so it was quite, quite open as a society. And uh, nevertheless, official ideology was the communism. And uh, this kind of, of course, created a sense of a forbidden fruit and interest in something that was not, not strictly speaking, some political socialist uh, vision of reality. So <clears throat> um, I actually was in, in the initiated into transcendental meditation, meaning receiving my mantra in 97. Uh, this, this was also quite popular in former Yugoslavia and um, Hare Krishnas were uh, quite early um, uh, also present. Uh, so there was, a, there, there was a kind of a decent interest in, uh, in the exotic or uh, unusual oriental, uh, mystical, magical parapsychology was quite popular. Uh, there were se several journals, uh, uh, magazines devoted to the subject of uh, mysteries and paranormal and uh, science fiction was rather popular. So <clears throat> the, this author that I mentioned, Slavinsky, when he started publishing his books, uh, this created a quite large following and it, 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 it was rather popular, at least among a certain segment of the population. So similarly, when the, when the Crowley started to be translated in, in former Yugoslavia, uh, and when the OTO became uh, active, for, for some reason, it created a really huge attraction and following. So at the time, uh, Yugoslavia was the, we are talking about the mid eighties to early nineties, Yugoslavian OTO was second in numbers only to the American OTO. And if you look at percentage-wise, we were number one. So <clears throat> I think that this is, to a large degree, to a large degree, this cannot quite be explained. I think it, it, it is somewhat coincidental, but uh, what created this coincidence was the simultaneous presence of, of several factors. Uh, uh, Tito died in 1980, so between 1980 and 1991, so kind of this long decade uh, between his death and the beginning of the, of the wars in former Yugoslavia, there was this incredible period of, uh, of opening toward uh, many new and interesting and unusual uh, things, movements, ideas. Uh, <clears throat> so I think that somehow within such 
social context, uh, the, 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 the kind of a, the, the arrival emergence and the constant popularity of the audio somehow found a fertile ground. But uh, what, which other forces were at play to create such such large interest and in following it, 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 it is a bit inexplicable, at least to me. I mean, I'm not a social scientist, so I don't even know how to, how to look properly at, at the phenomenon from a, from a specialist point of view. I'm just talking from the perspective of somebody who was there at the time and what it seemed like to me and what it still seems like to me, but I actually really do not know. Do you feel that, the, I mean, even the, the socialist underpinnings and the sort of emphasis on materialism in the education system um, creates, I mean, I think it creates a backlash as well in people if they're, if, they're, if they're acculturated to a particular way of thinking and they're exposed to a new idea, it's very attractive. That is probably the case. Uh, uh, that being said, I think that uh, most... Uh, most common, most uh, uh, most typical response was to to go to the traditional forms of religious life. So we've been communist for like three, four, four, five decades, and now we are back. We are again Catholics and Orthodox Christians and Muslims and all of that. So kind of going back to religion was a attraction and appeal to many people who grew up within. <clears throat> Within, uh, within within communism, uh, to some of us, to 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 a to a, to a smaller segment, uh, kind of the constraints of materialism of materialism, which was the official philosophy of dialectical materialism, which is basically Marxism, uh, to us, kind of a, some spiritualities and spiritual movements seem seem to be. Uh, attractive and appealing. There is, however, something else. When we, when we were in school, uh, of course, kind of we started this official ideology, but it was not really hammered into us. You know, it, it was there and we kind of, you know, made fun of it because we kind of realized it was to a large degree also kind of some BS or whatnot. Nevertheless, um, there was something in the, in the, in the system while we were growing up, the stories we would be told about uh, anti-fascism, about fighting against the Nazis, uh, against the um, German occupation and the previous Turkish occupation, that kind of created this sense of, uh, of seriousness. You kind of, uh, when, you, when you opt for something, when you choose a lifestyle, you kind of go there, you know, full throttle, and uh, I think that this you can still notice with with kind of some of the former communist uh, countries that kind of a, they do not approach uh, spirituality as a hobby. They're either, they're either not interested, or if they're interested, they're kind of really interested in, in it. So that might be some cultural uh, idiosyncrasy that has something to do with this official communist stuff, bringing ideology, materialism as official ideology and whatnot. Yeah, it's really interesting. So did you begin your academic work in Europe or after you'd made the, um, the move to, to um, Canada? Yeah, well, I, I, I did have my BA in, in the literature and the, in the library studies uh, from, from former Yugoslavia, from the University of Belgrade. But uh, at the time, I was really not so much interested in, in, in the academia because I found it to be quite boring, stifling, and the way it was done and, and, and all of that. And I didn't quite perceive the possibilities. Uh, in, in the retrospect, I, I wish I studied some classical philology, Greek and Latin at, at the time, where it was quite possible at the university, but I didn't. So I was already back, I mean, I was already in Canada, and uh, I was 37 when I decided that I should try to go back to school and spend one year as an unclassified, and then less than two years as, as an MA student, and then did my PhD. <clears throat> So basically kind of my sort of a, uh, reinventing myself as a sort of an academic, that's something that happened in Canada. Yeah, interesting. And, I, and um, when you began your academic work as an older person, um, in, your whole life had changed 
but the study of Western esotericism, I guess the center, the nexus of that was back in Europe to an extent. Um, yeah. Yeah, mostly. And basically, um, I did my MA in religious studies with the focus on Jewish mysticism and my PhD with Asian studies in uh, basically in South Asia, in, 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 in South Asian religious tradition in Hinduism. So <clears throat> while I was working on my, on my, on my thesis, on my PhD, I, I encountered the Western mysticism as a field of academic study and uh, immediately got kind of a hugely impressed and interested uh, by, by the whole possibility of, of, doing, of, of doing such work. And uh, <clears throat> it became suddenly obvious to me that there is this huge segment of Western uh, cultural history that is left unexplored, and that it provides incredible opportunity for research. So I immediately wanted to to somehow combine what, what I was doing with, with the study of esotericism. And uh, I did my thesis trying to explain the phenomenon of not yogis through the, through the lens of esotericism. And uh, <clears throat> I kind of already in 2005, like 15, 16 years ago, I was suggesting that we have to push the envelope and that we have to look at the esotericism as not necessarily Western phenomenon, but that kind of, but there is some aspect of esotericism present in other traditions as well. By this, I do not mean that there is one and the same universal esotericism everywhere. I think that there are differences between Buddhist and Hindu and Islamic and Jewish and Christian and uh, New Age esotericism, but there is also some family resemblance. There is some sense in which this is different than the exoteric external official consensus reality religion or however you want, you want to call it. So yeah, um, <clears throat> at the time at the time it was mostly in Europe. However, uh, by the time that I got my degree uh, already, uh, there was a, a, a mostly North American uh, a group, Association for Study of Esotericism. And uh, I mostly attended basically their conferences and um, there, there are differences that the Europe has its own uh, center for the study of, of, of these currents, first, first in, 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 in Paris and later uh, emphatically so in, in Amsterdam and for a while in Exeter, while in, the, in, the, in North America there is no center for study of these things, there is just a number of scholars who, who either in addition to their chosen field of study or even as their own preferred field of study are doing this research in esotericism, but there is no, there is no chair, there is no center, there is no kind of a faculty that, uh, that, would, that would focus on esotericism as yet. Because mm, I was going to ask you, I mean, when you began, it was, in, it was nascent, I suppose, Western esotericism, but throughout your your career with this re throughout your your research and development as an academic it's become a lot more widespread and like you say it hasn't taken root in america and people sort of carve out small niches within other within other faculties but um mm -hmm. yeah. western esotericism was was in its infancy really when you began studying um let alone Thelema. how did you negotiate those early years uh, well, <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I have uh, the the. How does it go? Kind of a the, the, when you when you are kind of a foolishly rushing where the the brave or the angels are fearful to tread. The, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to crack a joke and I can't remember the reference of the joke. I was just trying to say that kind of it was <clears throat> rather foolish of me to do so, but I didn't care care because I kind of uh, I assumed that uh, there's not much that one can lose and uh, that uh, I just have to do what I feel interested in doing. So um, yeah, I... I, I I, I I had a I was lucky to that uh, kind of a, my my uh, conference proposals were accepted that uh, my chapter proposals were accepted uh, a book uh, was able to publish book on the subject and um, 
So that's that's pretty much also the extent of my of my academic success. I never got a faculty position. I never got <clears throat> tenure. I never. Uh, my story is not a success story, so it, it's more like a cautionary tale to be told. I wonder if when you did, <laughs> when you did start presenting those papers. Um, mm -hmm. Were other were people baffled? Like, had the, did a lot of other academics go? What is this the Lima business? And then after exposure to it, could they see that it is an area of interest because it is really a marriage of many Eastern and Western mm -hmm. practices and, yeah. and, phil and philosophical positions? No, I basically did not did not have such responses. I mostly had a bit bit of. Uh, Head shaking uh, when I was proposing that there is uh, there are other forms of esotericism rather than than Western esotericism. I remember a colleague telling to me, "So shall we then say that there is also an African esotericism and Japanese?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, absolutely, totally, absolutely." And uh, so I had more 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 of a disagreement and uh, kind of a this disbelief in my proposal, rejection of my proposal that uh, we should look beyond beyond Western. And uh, I actually, it's actually a bit complicated because uh, I totally agree that there is such a thing as Western esotericism. And that what makes it specific is this kind of a being, being, being Western in its, in its uh, history and, and concepts, ideas, but that uh, th th there could be other adjectives, Western esotericism, Indian esotericism, ancient esotericism, modern esotericism, Buddhist esotericism, etc. Et so kind of a, this idea initially was, was not very popular. I, I got lots of uh, <clears throat> kind of a mm, expression of, of, of this belief that um, not doing the right thing that I'm, that I'm wrong. And uh, I, I do find some, some satisfaction in, in, in knowing that currently this is a rather accepted position that, uh, yeah, we should go beyond and there is more than just the Western esotericism. Now we read, now we read chapters that we should chop the adjective Western and things like that. So I agree, I, I actually don't think we should, we should drop adjective Western. We should only drop the idea that Esotericism is exclusively Western. There is such thing as Western and different than, let's say, Indian or Japanese esotericism. Well, I guess. Um... And uh, uh, Telema was Telema was mostly kind of a, it, it was uh, typically accepted. Uh, one major scholar uh, objected. Uh, um, that uh, I was kind of somehow trying to to draw correlation between between Crowley and, and in, in Indian tantricas. That uh, I was told that uh, this idea was basically proposed by Kenneth Grant, and that it was based on his misunderstanding of of Indian sources, and that uh, Crowley should not be considered to had to have had any real knowledge about Tantra and he shouldn't be considered to be a Tantric or anything of a sort. And uh, I both disagree uh, and uh, that was also not my proposal. That was not my argument. I did not say that Crowley was. My position was that uh, there is a there is a certain commonality between what Crowley was doing and what uh, Indian tantricas are doing, that some sort of comparison between their methods can be made. Mm. The same way to, say, to state the same would be to say that uh, what, what would be certain form of religious behavior that in India would be considered to be uh, domain of Tantra and, and Tantricas, uh, so kind of a similar behavior in, in the West was what was at least in some aspects of his practice done by Crowley and some, some similar guys. Mm. So, so basically I'm saying there is a similarity and there is a difference, but there is also some deep, deep meaningful similarity that that uh, deserves to be to, to be explored a bit more a bit more deeply that's that's pretty much it i wonder um in your early studies in the 
yoga particular in particular mm -hmm. do you think um academia in its sort of pneumological sort of structure uh, values purity of and and sort of and syncretic uh, syncretic ideas and admixture and impurity so to speak is something that that is re rejected by academia uh especially so a few decades ago that was definitely definitely the case i mean uh up until a few decades ago, something could be rejected as a field deserving of study because it was just uh, syncretic, because it was a salad, like uh, this is beneath the dignity of, of, of serious research. Um, yeah, I think that such tendency definitely did exist in the academia. It probably still exists, but I don't think it's a prevailing, prevailing uh, attitude anymore, which is, uh, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you were talking before about um, um, esoteric esotericism appearing in multiple in many many cultures all over the world. Um, <laughs> what are some of the defining features? Would you say initiation and secrecy, um, a, a cast of initiates, or like what exactly distinguishes it from other sort of um, exoteric religious forms? Um, yeah, I think that that is actually the crucial question because uh, it all depends on how we define define our terms. Uh, I actually think it is, it is uh, rather simple that uh, our knowledge is based on uh, our uh, adherence to, to, to binary oppositions. This is how we acquire knowledge. This is how we acquire language whether we understand that certain truths, certain ideas, certain powers are principally external to us or are they principally inner, internal, that this is uh, when we start talking about this inner and internal, then we are at the domain of esotericism. Uh, but this doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, that we are talking about external and internal in terms of cosmology or anthropology. I'm not saying that uh, if we think that God exists outside of us is necessarily esoteric notion. And if the God exists within us, that this is necessarily esoteric notion. It basically is, but it goes beyond that. Uh, I think that if we are able to go into any religious dogma, doctrine, statement, text, and uh, does it have only obvious mean, meaning or it also has some inner meaning that uh, kind of that uh, asks for meditation, insight, analysis, experience in order to be figured out, uh, understood, that these are then aspects that make something esoteric. Mm. So dealing, dealing with it, uh, giving preference to inner realities, giving preference to inner truths, giving preference to inner side of religion of something that is less obvious, that it, uh, that it is uh, not immediately encountered, uh, that, uh, that needs certain intuition to be understood or initiation or uh, mystical experience, or again, kind of uh, the issue of, of definition here is going to be problematic. So I think that this is what, what makes something exoteric or esoteric. What, what, where is the preference? What, what is more important? Mm. Uh, is, uh, I think that uh, if, if we operate the notion that, uh, that uh, let's say, God is within us, then I would say this then kind of is an esoteric notion. And it can be the official statement of a religion. So it doesn't have to be something that is secret. It doesn't have to be something that is often is, but it doesn't have to be. It's a really, it's a really interesting point of distinction, because I, mm. I mean, I, I guess even in the case of like a figure like Saint John of the Cross or Miguel mm -hmm. Molinos, who had an exoteric yeah. notion of God as God existing outside yeah. of themselves, yet their yeah. their processes, methods, and philosophies are very in, internal. Mm. Yeah. And also, not not everyone is going to agree on on this definition, and that's fine. Uh, you know, is somebody a realist or, 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 or a surrealist or a romantic uh, uh, poet? We don't have to agree. 
mm. from, from uh, one one person's as a as a is not necessarily the other person as a terrorist. <clears throat> mm. So I don't think we necessarily have to agree on all of this, but uh, some basic sense of recognition, some basic sense of family resemblance, some basic sense of, aha, this is it. You know, when you open a book of alchemical drawings and diagrams and uh, text, and you don't understand what it, what it means, you can, you, but you do feel that it means something important, like that there is something here. Kind of, they are not just playing with, with, with the ideas and images and symbols. So kind of there is, we, we, we do possess certain sense of, of, uh, of what things are. And I think that it makes sense to, to, to create a definition of, of esotericism based on this inner sense of that. I can, I can recognize it and this is what it is to me, but to, 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 to a next door neighbor that and non-esoteric at all. <clears throat> you know, astrology, for example, can be a very mundane endeavor. It can be completely mundane. And it can be kind of completely also esoteric and uh, hidden and mysterious. And, and uh, trying to say it's fluid and complicated and it doesn't have to be clear cut and we don't have to agree, all of us, completely. But the basic sense between inner, outer, inside and outside, and which one of the two we, we give preference to, what do we find more important, what do we find more interesting? If we find these inner truths, inner realities, inner hidden meaning of hidden meanings of the texts to be more important than we are as a mm. At least in my definition, and we don't have to agree again. <laughs> so um, one of the most exciting ideas I've come across in your work is the conclusion that Crowley's ontological worldview remained much the same from his Buddhist period prior to the reception of the Book of the Law through basically the rest of his life. And I was wondering if you could, um, if you could talk, talk to me about that very interesting paper that you wrote. Yeah, well, that kind of, a, in a sense, came as a, as a surprise to myself as well. But uh, if you just look at his own references in magic and theory and practice, when talking about the ontology, which is, I believe, the, the first chapter in the, in, the, in, the, in the book on the magical theory of the universe, He's talking about three basic theories of the universe and then made reference that this is treated uh, in, in his Barashit, which is uh, uh, an essay published before the Book of the Law. And then finally, he has the same reference to these three theories of the universe and to this early essay in his last published work in Magic, in, in Magic Without Seers. So <clears throat> he, was, he was fairly consistent consistent with, with, with these three with these three notions with, with these three ideas. What I what I do what I did find to be even more surprising um, aside from uh, monism, dualism and, and nihilism as the three basic cosmological theories, what I did find even more interesting and the personal is somewhat surprising, although it, it, although it is there, it is obvious, it is uh, written black and white, um, was his continuous use of Buddhist analysis of the characteristic, characteristics of existence that uh, he continued with his, with his A and its uh, and the A metaphysical, cosmological and ontological ideas. What I'm talking about in, in this case is uh, uh, I'm making reference to the specific tasks of the three highest grade in the, in the A, where their task is to somehow confront and, and master those aspects of existence that Buddhists take to be, <clears throat> to be valid, uh, which, uh, which is the characteristic of um, of sorrow or dukkha, which the master of the temple needs, needs to master. Then there is the second characteristic is the impermanence, anitya in Sanskrit or anicca in, in Pali. And the task of the, of the, of the magus is to master this. And finally, there is, the, there is the characteristic of the lack of self, anatta or anatman, 
which is the task of the epistemos to 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 kind of to face and to master. So <clears throat> somehow it seems that despite his rejection of Buddhism, and if he and, it, and it, there is no doubt that he did reject Buddhism as a as a valid comprehensive statement about the nature of the universe and the number of associated ideas and practices, ethical precepts, etc. Despite his obvious rejection of Buddhism as the ultimate key to reality, <clears throat> he does seem to continue to, to, to take as the evidence that there are these three aspects of existence that Buddhists were right, that, that, that the reality can be described in these three basic terms. But also interestingly enough, that this needs to be mastered. So in a certain sense, implication seems to be that the Buddhists have figured it out. This is how it is. However, it is possible to, to go beyond that in, in a sense, not to be swayed, not to be conquered and dismayed and uh, whatever is the proper expression here by these characteristics of existence but it, it is possible to master them. So now, how do you master them? Then, kind of again, it's it, it it's a separate and uh, should be told. Buddhists similarly argue that it is possible to master them in such a way that one is not overwhelmed by them, but that one is able to achieve spiritual uh, liberation or enlightenment or whatnot. Nevertheless, <clears throat> be that as it may. I do find it rather interesting that he retains this notion of these particular aspects of existence to be there and present and that need to be mastered in order to kind of climb the, the highest ladders in, in, the, in, in the system of the AA. So that kind of, I do, I do, I do find quite, quite interesting. Um, but what are you working on at the moment? I know recently you presented, um, uh, I guess, preliminary research on the ideas of yoga and Thelema, some recent sort of revela yeah. revelations you've had. It's difficult to walk through because yeah. it, it was a lengthy and detailed talk, but I wonder if you could talk about some of the names and metaphors that, mm, that, that, yeah. that the two hold in common and you, the conclusions that you've reached. Yeah, well, <clears throat> so, in theory, I'm working on a, on, on a larger study uh, where I'm trying to approach the lemma from the perspective of religious studies. I'm taking this, taking it as a new religious movement and I'm trying to, to explore it from, from, from such perspective. Uh, so this is not a biography of Crowley. This is also not simply Explication of what is present in, 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 in the system, but kind of a attempt to go to go a step further and to to interpret it. So attempted interpretation from a perspective of religious studies of which I consider esoteric study to be a subsect. Um, and uh, of course, within this larger larger project, uh, something needs to be said about uh, his his take on, on Asian spiritual tradition, in particular uh, yoga, we can sub-sum this under Hinduism, then kind of a, his take on Buddhism, and of course his take on, on, on East Asian philosophies, Taoism, aging, uh, and, uh, and the related issues. <clears throat> so what I presented recently for OTO Australia were some of the fruits of my own work on, on, on Crowley's uh, interpretation of yoga that are based primarily on, on his eight lectures on yoga, but of course some, some other works as well. And uh, what I, uh, the, some of the major insights uh, stem from my initial uh, uh, <clears throat> confusion or discomfort about, about some of his ideas. The, the, some of the very unusual statement from the eighth lecture was uh, from eight lectures was that uh, when when Crowley was talking about the Buddhist perception of, of of the sorrow and of the unsatisfactory nature of existence uh, <clears throat> that the cause of this universal sorrow lies in desire and then 
Crowley is talking about all of this in the context of yoga. And then he, he makes a comment and says, this is what is meant in the book of the law by love is the law of the will. <clears throat> and this completely threw me off. I mean, I read this uh, several times in the last 20 years or, or not, but <clears throat> I always skipped it because it, it, it somehow, it, it, it's an uncomfortable idea. So, so I finally decided to, 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 to focus a bit on, the, on this and try to understand what is he actually saying. So the idea in itself is rather unusual. He's saying the Buddhists are right. Universe, universe, uh, existence is, is sorrowful. And the cause of that sorrow is, is desire. And this is what the book of the law meant by love is the law, love under will. Why would he equate love from, from, uh, from the book of the law with, uh, with the Buddhist uh, idea that uh, about the cause of universal sorrow? <clears throat> and then <clears throat> also it's uh, kind of a, the way that he expresses himself is not the exactly the I interpret what he is trying to say. There are, there are few discrepancies, but um, <clears throat> to, to cut it short, uh, I think that the solution comes from his particular understanding of, of, of the word love. The way that he understands love in a technical sense has nothing to do or rather very little to do with romantic love. When he says love is the law, love under will, this love is... Uh, is any is the result of any contact between any two things. Mm. So when I, when you when you throw throw a pebble in, in in the water and kind of it makes this splash, this kind of a contact between the pebble and the water is is an act of love. And because you 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 threw it with will willingly, that is a, a act of love under will. So then. He understands love as really connection, co contact between any two things, between any two phenomena. And that is also the understanding of, 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 of yoga in, in the system of yoga. Contact between, uh, in, and, and he himself in, in, in the eight lectures, he describes it and, and, and says that this is principally contact between the conscious subject and the, and the, and the object of, of the consciousness of, of the thinking subject. So when I, when I perceive a tree in the garden, that's contact between my consciousness and the tree that is an act of love. And it is also an act of yoga. Uh, Neoplatonic neo, neo Renaissance philosophers were talking about the same thing or the very similar thing when they were talking about Eros as the ruling force in the universe that connects everything and keeps it all together. And uh, <clears throat> so somehow starting from this, uh, I, I thought that I was able to understand what he was implying, what he was trying to say, that uh, <clears throat> uh, contact between, between us and the whole plethora of our experiences is going to be painful uh, as long as it is not, not un, un, under will. So only those experiences that are that could be metaphorically described as yoga that are done under will, they are not, they are not painful because they are willed. In that sense, love is all love under will. Otherwise, we continuously experience a number of a number of things, and we have a a number of experiences that goes that go year by year, decade by decade, that are not fully built, that happen to us, that, that are not product of our conscious willing uh, decision to do so. They simply happen to us. And uh, within, the, within the constraints of this metaphors, then these experiences are not uh, under the rubric of love under will. They are, they are experience of contact between us and the objects of our experience. So in that sense, they are, they are, they are phenomena of love, but not love under will. So only then if love is under will, then, uh, then we are actually living life that is, that is not painful. And uh, <clears throat> consequently, the whole project of magic as a, as a, as a science of art of, of causing change to occur in conformity with will, that change 
is also love. Crowley consistently talk about, about change having the nature of love. And why does it have a nature of love? Because to change something from, from one perspective, from one, uh, a, from one form of existence into another implies a new contact between the subject of the experience and the object of their experience. So you change from A to B, from B to C, but each of the contact between you and the object of the experience that it qualifies A, B, or C is going to be an act of love. So then change is love. So then science and art of occurring change to uh, change in conformity with will is pretty much equivalent to saying that uh, magic is the science of art of, 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 having, of having yoga or love in conformity with will. So love under will becomes equivalent to magic, which then becomes uh, equivalent to the preferable way of living without, without experience uh, pain or suffering or displeasure or uh, some other negative, negative aspect. And uh, if this is taken to its logical conclusion, and Crowley was also explicit in several of his writings on, 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 uh, on this point, at least in my reading and in my understanding, then in the end, this will amount to that you accept everything that happens to you as, as a willing act, that, that everything that happens to you is an act of will under love, love under will, I'm sorry. So, Nietzsche and Amor Fati acceptance and level of everything that happens to one is un understood as um, as an act of of love under will as as an act of as an act of magic. So we will everything that is going to happen to us. In his most metaphysical statements, Crowley suggests that we have entered into this incarnation willingly and that everything that we experience is part of our original plan. And plan cannot be, okay, I'm, 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 I'm entering in existence in order, in order to experience certain displeasures. No, I think that uh, this original plan is to enter into incarnation in order to gain experience because by gaining experience, we, uh, we achieve self-knowledge. And that is the knowledge of our ability to enter into various permutations with the infinite possibilities of knowing. So, kind of, we as Hadith uh, are continuously engaging in a theoretically infinite number of um, of acts of love under will with knowing. And then that's the purpose of incarnation. Not to be a poet or, not, or, or to be a fisherman or, or to be a politician, but to have an experience because this teaches us something about ourselves and we understand ourselves in the mirror of our experiences with an aspect of Noit. <clears throat> so, as you can hear, as you can see, uh, it, it's still rough uh, my thinking is not quite fully formed but I think that these are the basic guiding ideas that that the research has led me to to be guided uh, to this point and let me just add one more thing that uh, that uh, in, in a similar way that uh, I found it originally problematic this statement that uh, love as mentioned in the book of the law is equivalent to Buddhist desire that is the cause of suffering uh, another complicated, difficult uh, statement by Crowley is that every phenomenon is, a, is an act of love under will. So while, we would or, while I would ordinarily say, and I have probably said it like five minutes ago, that we have to choose a particular form of activity that is going to be under will, he's actually saying, and he specifically mentions this in some essay on, 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 on Yi Jing, I believe, or, or on Dao De Jing, I can't remember anymore some Taoist essays, some notes. He's basically saying literally that every phenomenon is an act of love under will. So then this can imply only, only, only one thing in my understanding, unless it's just talking nonsense, that uh, everything is done under, under whose will? If I, if I eat uh, an, another piece of cake, is this an act of my will 
or is this the actual will of bacteria within me that want more sugar so that they can they can multiply more? I'm kind of implying here something that uh, that Krzysztof took in, in his talk on, on Aura et Labora when he was talking about various forms of will. There can be a sick will, there can be a false will, etc., etc. So when I go and do something that is against my, let's say, essential will, and do some stupid thing, that stupid thing is still an act of love under will. It's just not my own true will. It's not my own pure will, but it's kind of a false will or or perverted will or uh, non-essential will or whatnot. But it is, I, 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 I still maintain it, it is rather troublesome statement that every phenomenon is an act of love under will. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, I think elsewhere in, um, in the commentary on the book of the law, I think um, it's like all phenomena is the play of Nui, is the statement yeah. that's made in that one, which amounts to yeah. Yeah. a very similar conclusion so it, it, look it seems to me that your own personal spiritual research your private private spiritual research has led you to some of the conclusions of this what will manifest as an academic like well maybe not a treatise but some it'll be it'll it'll it'll, it'll take form in, in ink and paper at some point hopefully yeah have there been other instances where you, your research has informed your own private practice rather than the other way? Um, well, I think it, I think it always goes it, it, it always goes goes like that. And uh, the only the only thing is uh, <clears throat> that um, there is unfortunately this discrepancy between between knowing and being. I mean, I know everything that needs to be known in terms of uh, what one needs to do in order to be an enlightened person. I just cannot do it because I'm just too selfish and too ignorant or too whatever in order to do it. Uh, we know that one should be, uh, you know, uh, uh, that one should not be egotistic, but nevertheless, we, st we still act e egotistically. So unfortunately, this discrepancy between knowing and being does exist. So in that sense, uh, I'm trying to kind of uh, my my practice and my spiritual maturity is 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 limping behind my my insight into into what I'm able to to find out and read about and and uh, hopefully understand about what what I'm reading. So <clears throat> there's a bit of a trying trying to catch one's own tail and spending life in the effort. But that's probably the way it is always. Thank you very much, Godal. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Great to talk to you. Be sure and read Godal's groundbreaking essay, The Birth of the New Eon, Magic and Mysticism of Thelema from the Perspective of Postmodern Atheology, in Volume 2 of Aura e Labora, available through online book retailers. Until next time, Love is the law, love under will.